Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Pellegrino Matarazzo, the American manager of newly Bundesliga promoted Stuttgart, who has a tremendous story that you may not have heard before. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Guillaume Balaguet, and Micah Richards, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. That is absolutely huge for us. We'll have Pellegrino Matarazzo on soon, but let's talk about the soccer news with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Lots to dig into with this Champions League. Let's get into it. Yeah, it just ended. Uh, Bayern Munich won, Paris Saint-Germain zero. I don't usually say Paris Saint-Germain, but I just did for (laughs) for no good reason there. A lot fewer goals in this game than we were expecting. I I said 3-1 Bayern before the game. What happened here, and and what were your initial thoughts on on this game we just saw? Well, given that it just ended, I've been thinking a lot about how in the last 15 to 20 minutes, as Bayern were seeing out the game, just how comfortable it was for them. And there was one moment where Neymar and and, uh, and Mbappe broke away. PSG missed a few chances that you'll go back and look at and say, well, if they converted one of those, it's a different game. But with so much of the pre-match buildup about Bayern Munich's high line and, uh, and and about how they're vulnerable in behind, what you kind of fail to realize is the way that they press and close down in midfield doesn't really allow you to take advantage of that high line. And how we often see teams when they decide, all right, we're up 1-0, we're going to see out the game, they drop further back and they try and keep the game in front of them, whereas Bayern did the exact opposite and were very keen to continue their pressing and make life difficult for PSG building up. And it really stopped PSG from creating that one chance that you remember, oh, if they had just converted that one, they could have been going to extra time. Bayern saw the game out in a different way than we're used to seeing. And I think that's a bigger thing than just this Champions League final is part of the overall growth of tactics in the game is this is the way that you see out games, not not put 10 men behind the ball and try and absorb all the chances that the opposition are going to create. Yeah, Bayern Munich played the high line in this game. That's the way they play. It's been very, very effective for them under Hansi Flick. Not only did they continue playing that way, they lost Jerome Boateng in the first half, had to bring in Sula, who did just fine, uh, as did the rest of their back line. I, I was impressed with that. Now, PSG had chances in this game. Mm-hmm. They just didn't come from the, what we expected. We expected that Neymar and Mbappe, with their speed, would get into the space behind the high line, and that's where the chances would come from. But that really wasn't what created the chances they had. There were three terrific chances, one by Neymar that got saved by Manuel Neuer, one by Mbappe that... He just hit right at Neuer. Another one from Marquinhos, who's not much of a finisher anyway, Mm -hmm. pretty much hit at Neuer, who made the save. I guess you could say also that Angel Di Maria had a chance in the first half that he put over the bar, but... PSGs didn't convert when they had those chances. And that's been a theme for them in Lisbon. As much as so much is talked about their attacking threats, they've also been wasteful in front of goal. I think Mbappe in particular, this is an area of his game that he probably needs to work on. And look, this is still an incredibly young star, and it's an impossibly high standard that we hold him to, in part because of the transfer fee, in part because we've seen him pull off every kind of finish in legal and play and is obviously 
part of a World Cup winning team, but there are still moments where he's wasteful in front of goal, and I think he had another one in this game that you mentioned. Just in general, you see when he picks up the ball and he's facing goal, and he's running at whoever his opposite number is today. It was, it was Joshua Kimmich, but you just look at it and go, oh, Mbappe is going to do him. Like He's just going to have him for lunch every time, and that just didn't play out today, and credit to Kimmich and credit to the combination of both Boateng and Shula as well, as you mentioned, but I just think that PSG have not been terribly clinical in Lisbon. They've just about done enough to get over the line. And I also think that Bayern did a pretty decent job limiting those chances. As much as we can kind of pick those two and three out, it wasn't an onslaught like we might have expected this game to be wide open and PSG have eight, eight and nine and they have to put one of them away. The common denominator that you brought up in all those chances was Neuer. It's 34-year-old keeper who again and again in 1v1 situations, in dangerous situations, seems to bail out his team. He's kind of playing like the best goalkeeper in the world again, which I didn't think he had in him after the 2018 World Cup and took so long to recover from injury. I didn't think he had this in him again, but he's kind of back in the conversation for world's best goalkeeper and showed it again today. Yeah, Neuer had some really good moments today. I also think, and I and I know you think this too, that PSG maybe didn't get enough credit for how solid their defense had been during the entirety of Champions League and also today where... You know, I came in thinking Bayern was just going to be a machine again, and they weren't. I thought in the first half, in fact, that Bayern had a much harder time connecting passes to each other than we typically see. Now, then Bayern did start to connect a bit more in the second half, and, and that did create you know, some of the issues that led to the goal. And one of the things that I've kind of enjoyed about this tournament format, you know, beyond the single elimination, all that is there is kind of a building momentum with having watched these teams repeatedly every four and five days. So I've now, I, I don't normally watch the Bundesliga. I don't watch every Bayern match as regularly as, as I've been watching this or even after a restart when the Bundesliga was the first to come back. I'm now kind of familiar with the rhythms of what Bayern at their best look like. And I just didn't see that in the first 55, 60 minutes of the game. There wasn't that crispness. There wasn't that one-touch combination on the edge of the penalty area to unlock the PSG defense. But as you mentioned, PSG has an underrated defense heading into this final. I don't think it was really talked about enough that PSG had entered the game 25 goals scored, five goals conceded in the whole of the tournament. PSG had a very difficult group as well. And in the whole of the 2019-20 tournament, dating back to September of last year, they've only given up six goals now, having lost the final. So they have a solid defense and inflicted a measure of solidity and rigidity into the Bayern attack that very few teams have been able to do. So credit to them as well for how they manage the game, but ultimately it's a real moment of quality from Kimmich's cross to find Kingsley Coleman on the back post who also puts together a great header as well. That whole move for the goal was sensational. Yeah, and even the layoff from Thomas Mueller to Kimmich mm. that gave him the space to hit that pass uh, I thought was impressive. Coman was the only player that was a change in this lineup from Hansi Flick. Hansi Flick, by the way, is a total stud. Like, if you look at his season, <laughs> what he was able to do to turn things around for Bayern after Niko Kovac had put them in a, a, a tough spot, I think, with some of his choices earlier in the season, loses his job. Hansi Flick comes in as the interim, loses the interim label, goes on to win Champions League. There's a little bit of a feeling that I get that's similar to Jupp Heynckes. Not in age, obviously, but in terms of the amount of respect that they got, they get around the world compared to the effectiveness that they have had at Bayern Munich ahead of other people 
including, by the way, Pep Guardiola, who never won Champions League at Bayern. You know, what Hansi Flick did, it certainly seems like, was to restore Thomas Müller, which was the single biggest thing he did, but also sort of to restore a little bit of player power and the feeling that they were going to play a certain way. It was going to be a very aggressive way to play. That started with their pressing high, but it was team-wide, the high line, all of it, and it really did come together. And it's risky to implement a style like that with older players. And both from the German national team through to Bayern Munich, there's been this movement to, uh, we're done with Müller, we're done with Boateng, we're done with the German legends that have you know sustained this generation. Let's move on, let's kick on. And uh, Joachim Lowe went to Bayern Munich and had this conversation with these older players that he's not going to pick them anymore. And it's you know been an issue in Germany, but... Hansi Flick did the, the exact opposite, played this very proactive, attacking, high-risk style with older players who could, who could potentially be beaten in behind and trusted them to implement it. In the end, Bayern Munich have won their last 20 competitive matches in all competitions when you include the end of the Bundesliga season. Basically, since February the 16th, they have not lost a game when they beat Köln 4-1 since they have you know beat Chelsea in the Champions League, obviously all the way through to this final. They won every match in Bundesliga, and they won the Pokal final against Bayer Leverkusen. So they have been on an absolute tear, and it makes you wonder, will the mythology... Because ultimately, the big managers in the game, it's not just about the success that they have with their teams it's kind of about a legend that's built around a style of play around a personality you see it with Klopp you see it with Guardiola uh, you see it with Jose Mourinho you see it with Pochettino even Pochettino kind of gets thrown around for everything he had a good Spurs team but it's nothing out of the ordinary I think it's about kind of having your story told and now I'm curious to see who's going to tell his story and who's going to assign a, you know, Maurizio Sarri, like he got a style of play named after him. Is Hansi Flick going to have a, like, basically what I'm saying is that Hansi Flick needs a marketing manager, a <laughs> PR guy, so that he can have his legend built in the game. You talk about young players, or old players, there were some young players, obviously, in this mm-hmm. Bayern outfit. You know, Serge Gnabry is not an old guy, you know, this is a guy who was just playing in the Olympics back in 2016 when he started to really revive his career. And then, obviously, Alfonso Davies. And we need to talk about Davies here. He may be, I think, the first MLS player to go to Europe and win the the Champions League, which it's just such an amazing story how uh, such a young player still, he's just he's 19, was able to go to Bayern, end up not getting loaned out, become a starter, and become this absolutely feared left back now who is a champions league winner and and it's it's something that uh, he deserves every accolade he is going to get. And it was funny because I was going to derail the conversation and bring him up anyway because I was where I'm still have the CBS coverage on, and they showed an interview with him with a Champions League medal around his neck. How crazy it must it be for the Canadian national team fans to see that for Vancouver Whitecaps fans to see one of their own go and win the Champions League and feel like he's on the ascent, not feel like, well, he's a bit part player who had three appearances off the bench and a player for Vancouver Whitecaps won the Champions League. No, this is a a key figure who's been talked about as one of the best left backs in the world. To me, it was interesting, though, that he actually did more of the job of left back than left winger that he normally plays today, where I don't feel like he actually contributed much in the attack and actually had some poor moments going forward, some poor moments in possession. But I do think as much as Bayern were playing high, they did still respect 
to some degree, the attacking threat of a runner in behind. And I think Alfonso Davies probably had far more defensive instructions that he would normally have. Yes, you go and close down. Yes, you leave your position and be in attacking areas. But I also think that his task of defending Kylian Mbappe was so important that I feel like that was probably foremost on his mind. And you can see on a couple of occasions where he's coming forward with the ball and is still looking over his shoulder just to make sure that either there's not a, a runner from behind or he's not leaving his position too much because of how important that job is. thought he did a brilliant job. Mbappe was fairly anonymous until late in the match. Uh, so from a defensive point of view, I think that's probably his best performance in a big match that we've seen. Yeah. And think of how much better he's going to get as he gets older. You just hope that he's able to stay healthy. We have no reason to think otherwise. But like once Alfonso Davies figures out, and he said this before, figures out positioning (laughs) defensively a little bit better because now you see him having to rely on his speed sometimes to make up for uh, some positioning errors. He gets forward so much. It's crazy. And his, his recovery speed has allowed him to do that. But the more time that passes... I can't wait to see what he's going to do in his career. He's already a Champions League winner, so just an incredible story. I did want to ask you, I thought the referee and VAR had a bad day. And Mm. it it ended up, in my opinion, not ruining the game because I thought there was one penalty for each side that should have been called and wasn't. And that was the the late first half penalty claim when Coman beat Kerr and got Mm. taken down no call, didn't appear to even be a VAR review. And then second half, which when you first saw it in real time, you didn't think when Mbappe went down from Mm. Kimmich that it was a penalty. And then you looked at the replay and you were like, oh, wow, there was a lot of contact there. Once again, no call, no apparent review from VAR. So they kind of cancel each other out, but I thought they were both penalties. I agree on the second, because on the incident with Mbappe, definitely thought there was plenty of contact. On the first one, I think Coman kind of rides the hand on his back. I th- I've watched it a few times. It didn't really feel to me like the hand from Kerr in the back of Coman was really affecting his movement that much. Maybe that's just the way that I kind of see it on instant replay and you have to watch the, the the live view, but I definitely thought the second one was a penalty. The first wasn't. The overall view from me is that VAR has kind of been absent in this Champions League. And I think we've seen UEFA use it a lot more in tournaments previous. I I think UEFA has been a a bit more in line with FIFA and their use of VAR in that I feel like games on the continent are refereed and VAR'd at the highest level, whereas it just kind of feels like they tossed VAR in the bin for this one for some reason, <laughs> that there just weren't that many incidents that were even checked, or there weren't very many moments where the, where the referee is stopping the game to put his finger in his ear. I didn't really feel like they wanted to use VAR much at all. I don't know why, because, I mean, UEFA, I think, have done a pretty good job with it. They send their referees to the monitor more than any league, or more than like, you see in England, for instance, but I just think, in general, they let the referees referee the game, and as well, I thought today the referee was fairly lax in his view of the game. There are a few moments of some serious contact all over the pitch that he let go and didn't start handing out cards until fairly late. So I just think in general, the view of the referees has been very lax during this tournament. I'm also looking at Bayern Munich for next season here and seeing Leroy Sané being added to this. And it looks like they're going to lose Thiago, which they've known about for a little while. I thought he was very good down the stretch this year. I do feel like losing him is not going to be a total killer. And I just see so much danger in this Bayern lineup for next season, which starts very soon. Um, (laughs) And, and think like they could be even better. 
I still think, though, they probably need a bit more in defense. As much as Jerome Boateng had a good tournament and a, and a good run, I do think at some point they're going to have to figure out a solution there. I, I'm not a huge believer in Nicola Sula. They, they kind of had this oh, no. makeshift they had this <laughs> makeshift solution uh, with David Alaba moving into defense. Don't know if that's for the long term. I think also his contract is running down as well. If you move Kimmich back into the middle, does he give you 100% of what Tiago gives you? I think Tiago has such a range of passing that is unique to him. I kind of wonder if they need another number there. I still think Hansi Flick came in, implemented this style, and has Bayern going in the right direction. But I still actually do think they need to add a little bit and, and make sure that they solidify that team. The Sané thing is absurd. When you think of a wing play, Sané, Gnabry, Coman and Alfonso Davies bombing on from left back. That is terrifying. I would not want to be a fullback going against Bayern Munich in the in the foreseeable future. So how about adding Serginio Dest to that wide danger? Because everything I've understood in talking to people at Bayern is, is that they see Pavard more as a center back than mm-hmm. a right back, and that they see Kimmich as more of a central midfielder than a right back. And you know, those have been their two right backs. Like they're in the market to buy a right back. And I think obviously it would be fantastic for the U.S. men's national team if a player like Serginio Dest were to get bought by Bayern to be their right back with a, a, a price tag that basically says this guy has to play. I mean, that would be amazing. I think it might be a little early. Like I do, I do kind of want to see him carry on at Ajax because I think also Ajax is a tremendous club to grow at but at the same time I think we've seen how much it worked for Alfonso Davies and now you don't really have to worry so much particularly going forward here with Americans, North Americans, CONCACAF players going to big clubs and not having a pathway through. I think Pulisic has proved and Alfonso Davies has proved is that if you're good enough you're going to play like there isn't you're not going to have a situation where somebody goes to Europe and isn't given an opportunity. Reyna at Dortmund, Pulisic at Dortmund. I mean, there's so many examples now of Americans getting minutes now. Jonathan David moving to Lille in, in the French Ligue He got to start this weekend. There are so many players where I don't think we really can think of it now as if a player like Serginho Dest moves to Bayern Munich, well, he'll never see the field and it's you know a waste of his time have him stay at Ajax. No, I think either club would be tremendous for his development because you know that they teach the game the right way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of exciting things happening. Obviously, at Bayern Munich, they are winning the Champions League, winning the Bundesliga. They just don't seem to have off days ever. And, you know, maybe they'll have those challenges next season. But right now, just, you know, uh, so impressive what's happening at that club. And they turned it around fairly quickly from the uh, the Kovac situation. Anything else you want to add on this game? I actually do think that that Kovac thing is kind of very instructive. I, I do think there are moments where managers are overblamed, but ultimately a club like Bayern, I don't think now the biggest clubs in the world, you can put the handbrake on them anymore. I think every one of them needs to be afforded the opportunity. Now, maybe there's a club like, say, Juventus, that it's just so in their DNA to play a certain way that if you try and bring in someone who's going to have them high press and, and go crazy with attacking, that might not work. But I just think the biggest clubs in the world, it's going to be a measurement of who can do what Bayern Munich do the best, right? Because PSG, we're doing that today. You know Man City uh, will we'll do that, except for when they're playing Lyon, apparently. But you know that the biggest clubs in the world are trying to play this way. And I think Kovac was like a bit too conservative to be Bayern manager. And I do kind of wonder now if there's room for... Uh, Mourinho's and Sibione's, let's say, to go to other clubs because I just don't think that now the best players in the world can play, you know, with a bit more conservative of a style. You kind of have to let them do their thing. And so 
I think that's what your major European football is going to be, at least for the next few years until the next trend comes in. And if you're a neutral fan, you want that, right? Of course. I mean, you, you don't really want to see everyone try and play like Simeone's team or Mourinho's team. That seems like a, a kind of a, a style that is in the past. And, and I think even Simeone may have to change. You saw what happened when he didn't start Joao Felix and brought him on, and he changed their game against Leipzig. They still ended up losing, but played that guy more. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even just about playing him. It's about what you do once he's on. And look, there are other players in that team that can play free-flowing attacking football. Yeah. They just choose not to. But I just think that now, you know, there's not really room for Simeone. Like, what if Simeone stays as is, is Bayern Munich going to want to bring him in? Like, as successful as he's been and as many honors as he's won... I don't think so. And I, I think the biggest clubs in the world just don't want to go this way anymore. So a couple other things I want to touch on here. First off, happy birthday. And, Thank you, Grant. And congrats <laughs> on, on doing your first game call in person in a stadium, yeah. <laughs> even if it was an empty stadium. Yeah. Uh, a historic win for Inter-Miami against Orlando on Saturday night. Tell me about it. Yeah, so uh, I did the, the radio call uh, with your friend and former colleague, Fernando Fiore. Presidente. And, uh, and Thomas Rongen as well. So I think this is a, a very uniquely American experience. So I've worked at five or six different media companies, television, radio, and every game I had called until Saturday night was off a monitor. It was basically, you know, you're in a room somewhere and you're calling the game off TV. I had not done even, you know, I, I'd done Miami FC games when they were in NASL and when they've been in the USL the stadium is 20 minutes from where I'm doing the game, but I'm still in a broom closet calling a game off a of television. It's just the very peculiar na nature of soccer on television in this country. But I finally got to be in the stadium. And yeah, Miami, I mean, what a turnaround from MLS's back. They were proactive, attacking, fun, created chances. Rolfo Pizarro was involved. Julian Carranza, they spent a lot of money on too, uh, scored a couple of goals. And, uh, it was just a tremendous experience. And it was uh, cool scenes as well at the final whistle. There were actually a group of like 100 fans that gathered around the gates of the stadium, socially distanced, masks and all that, setting off fireworks and all that, creating atmosphere. And the players went and applauded them after the match. So uh, some cool scenes as well. And Miami finally on the board. Nice. Yeah, they'd set a record for losing their first five MLS games as an yeah. expansion team. But that had been a little deceiving, I thought, because they'd kind of been in every game. And so... To get three points against uh, an Orlando team that obviously got to the MLS's back final, that looks promising. Uh, there was one other standout MLS game on Saturday, and that was LA Galaxy kind of out of nowhere winning 2-0 at LAFC, their arch rival. And very surprising result, obviously, since Guillermo Barcelotto really, I think, was in danger of losing his job. It might still be, but I think he won some credit uh, this time around here with his bosses. But uh, no Chicharito, and interestingly, no Atuesta for, for LAFC, and I thought that really hurt them. But also less energy than I was expecting to see from LAFC, and the Galaxy deserved this win. You do wonder how much the Bank of California atmosphere does play a role in how much LAFC are kind of rampant at home. Now, they do go away from home and play that quality of stuff. We saw it at times during MLS's back as well, but you do kind of wonder if they're in that stadium going, oh, we missed the, the 32-52 in that end and, and the atmosphere that's created here. But 
I just think overall LAFC, as well as they've played at times after signing Brian Rodriguez, I think without an out-and-out center forward in that starting team, when you have Rodriguez, Vela, and Rossi trying to interchange, one of them plays as a false nine, it just doesn't look the same. And credit to the Galaxy for getting a result away from home. You mentioned no Dos Santos and no, and no Chicharito. Uh, I mean, Dos Santos did come off the bench, but they're replaced by Perry Kitchen and Ethan Zubak. Like, it's not like they're replaced by world, world beaters, and Ethan Zubak gets his first goal for the Galaxy, and a result that's totally against form based off of uh, how poor the Galaxy were at MLS's back. And even before that, I mean, they played a game at home against Vancouver Whitecaps, which they should have lost. So the Galaxy now on the board, and, and we'll see what it's like now going forward uh, in this group. They play Seattle next. It's a tough group that they're in, uh, in this little kind of mini league that they're playing before branching out further. But huge result for LA and for Guillermo barros Galoto in particular. Yeah, I thought Christian Pavone had a good game too, and and... Uh, that's that's a uh, yeah very encouraging result. We'll see if they can keep it up. MLS games kind of coming fast and furious here, unless they get postponed. <laughs> Fingers <laughs> crossed on all of that. Uh, but there will still be plenty of soccer to talk in in the weeks ahead here, um, and uh, you know just like the the different phases of the MLS season play out, and you hope that they can continue to play. Yeah, so far only one positive COVID test who is a player who wasn't with the traveling party of Chicago Fire. Other than that, we haven't had any issues just yet, but based off the results we've seen from Major League Baseball, I, I do think that it's only inevitable. I guess the one difference is that a Major League Baseball team travels to a city for two and three days, whereas, for example, I was following the protocol for Orlando and Miami, so Orlando flew out on a charter uh, flight the morning, or maybe even the afternoon of the game, give it a one-hour flight, played the game, and then flew out uh, right after the game. So at no point did they stay in a hotel, and no point were they in Fort Lauderdale for a prolonged period of time. So I guess that's probably the best way to do it and why MLS is doing it on a regional basis. But still, when everyone is out in the world and not in a bubble, there's risk. So we'll, we'll hope to see that there's no cancellations and not too many positive COVID tests, obviously. All right, good stuff. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here is my interview with Pellegrino Matarazzo. <laughs> Our guest now is Pellegrino Matarazzo, a New Jersey native and Columbia University alum who is the manager at the storied German club Stuttgart, which he led to promotion last season ahead of its return to the German top flight starting September 19th against Freiburg. Pellegrino, congratulations on everything you're doing, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Grant, and, and thanks for having me. First off, how are how are preparations going for the new season? Uh, what have you guys been up to so far? Things have been uh, going well as planned. Uh, we were two and a half weeks into preseason. Uh, I switched back and forth week to week between offensive and defensive work. Uh, we've done some some basic offensive principles and, uh, you know, plan of attack, you know, learning the, our, our game idea. On the first week, second week, we've done some some pressing and, and goal. I'm not sure what the terminology is in English, sorry for, uh, you know, maybe a lack of, of vocabulary, but like uh, goal defending in the second week. And now we're, we're just kind of getting into transition phases. Um, you know, we had a couple games that got canceled because of you know, different different reasons, but uh, we're looking forward to our next test match and live against Liverpool on Saturday to, to see how, you know, how really things have been going, you know, because you always need an opponent to see uh, at what level you're at. But so far, I have a good feeling, and then let's see how it goes. So we're recording this on Thursday and coming out on Monday. So by the time listeners get this, you will have played Liverpool I'm just curious to know, like, 
how much of your top team will be involved in this and how much of Liverpool's top team will be involved in this? Well, I, I can't say um, how much of Liverpool's top team is going to be involved in the game, um, but we will be playing a strong, strong 11, uh, at least for the first 60 minutes. And um, we have a couple of players that are injured or, you know, not completely fit. So it won't probably, probably will not be or will not be the, the first 11 that will be starting against Freiburg, but uh, our strong 11 at the moment. And, you know, you know, we need to, we want the test. We want to see where we're at. And uh, it's a great, great thing, you know, to play against Liverpool, the reigning uh, Champions League champ and uh, I think world champ. Um, and, you know, we're, we're excited for the game. So when American viewers watch your team in the Bundesliga this season, what kind of a style should they expect to see you play? So what, what kind of style? Um, I'm, I'm I'm very solution oriented. Um, I I base my game on, on principles regarding, of course, uh, space, numbers, and, and and rhythm. You know, change change of change of pace, and uh, we look to see how we can we can hurt the opponent. We look to control the game uh, in all phases of the game. And um, so it would pr- probably be a little different uh, depending on which opponent we're playing against. So you may see us uh, playing against Liverpool with uh, with a deep, uh, like a deep defending position and counter, working on counter. Uh, you may see us attacking high against a different opponent where we see, you know, an advantage to that style of play. Uh, but always based on uh, the same principles that we continue to teach day in and day out. So there aren't obviously many Americans who are head coaches in European soccer, much less in, in the top flight of Germany. I want to give listeners a sense of your story. So let's let's go back to the start. How would you describe where you grew up? <laughs> so I, I grew up in, uh, in Fairlawn, New Jersey, in a very conservative Italian household. <laughs> Uh, we, you know, my, my mom is the, the youngest of, of 10, 10 siblings. She has nine siblings. My father also has a, a pretty big family. So I was surrounded by, by cousins, aunts, and uncles in, uh, in New Jersey. And uh, just went through the school system in Fairlawn. Uh, and, you know, did my high school, got my high school diploma. I went to college in uh, Columbia University, like you already mentioned. And uh, that's <laughs> that's pretty much it. You know, I, I'm, I'm a born and raised American and uh, it's a part of me, a part of my culture, part of who I am. So how would you describe your experience at Columbia University? Uh, Columbia was, was an amazing time uh, in the city. And uh, like I just said, I, I, I was born and raised in a conservative Italian household. And with uh, 17 years of age, I was able to <laughs> just open up to the world in, in New York City. Um, so away from home for the first time with us in a city that's anonymous, that offers you everything you're looking for. It was um, definitely four years of, of self-realization and self-exploring. And, you know, just the, the guys on the, at school are just brilliant, brilliant, you know, brilliant people in class, brilliant guys on the team. Um, it's just an amazing experience that I would never never exchange for anything else. So you graduated from Columbia in 1999. Before we started recording this, we were talking about what a small world it is. There's a decent chance that I covered you when I was a student writer at the Princeton School paper uh, your first year, 95, 96, when 
you guys played against Princeton at a time when they had Jesse Marsh uh, as a player and Bob Bradley as their coach. And obviously Jesse Marsh and Bob Bradley are two of the other Americans who have coached in Europe in soccer. Do you have any specific memories of, of games against those guys? Uh, sure. I mean, I have memories of Bob Bradley. Bob Bradley was actually my uh, coach at Bergen's best solar camp when I was uh, in, in high school. So him and uh, Bob Bradley and uh, Manfred Cheltscheid ran a camp of, of talented players. Um, and that's the first time I actually ended up meeting, meeting Bob. And I do remember playing against him uh, at his time in Princeton. Uh, playing against, I don't remember playing against Jesse, but I do. Um, my, my brother sent me an article recently of one week where Jesse Marsh ended up being the player of the week at Princeton, and I was a rookie of the week uh, at, at Columbia. So it was, you know, we, we, we spoke about that, laughed about that a bit, and just how it's a, a small world. So upon graduation from Columbia, what did you decide to do? I was pretty sure. I mean, it wasn't never, never really a decision that I had to make because I was sure that I wanted to continue playing football. Uh, I wanted to see. I, I was very curious. I'm, I'm a very curious guy. Uh, I, I wanted to know how far I can get on the European stage. And I tried my luck first in Italy where I was promised a couple of tryouts with uh, second division clubs, uh, which ended up not turning out as promised. Um, ended up spending five to six months with my grandparents in, in their house in Avellino, Italy, which was also a very a great experience for me. But soccer-wise, wasn't the most um, productive year for me. Came back to the States and was looking for, you know, the next, next step uh, my mom was pushing me to get a job and saying listen it's i can't have you around the house anymore you need to do something with yourself and i said no i i'm i'm waiting i want to give it a shot and then uh, at some point a couple months later um, somebody a german uh, my which is actually my friend now a german uh, deep Myrtle, myrtle uh, actually asked me if i wanted to try my luck in germany he knew a uh, head coach of a fourth division club uh, bad kreuznach and I said, I, I do. I, I want to give it a shot. So I, I went overseas. It was June of uh, 2000. No, yeah, the June of June of 2000. Ended up going out for a tryout and uh, actually never, never came back. I've been here ever since. That was the, the start of my, you know, job here. <laughs> How early in your playing career did you decide that you might want to coach someday? You know, I started climbing the ranks. I mean, I, I was not doing poorly. I um, After one year at Bidekoit, I jumped into the third division. Um, things were looking promising until I had my first knee operation. And then I had a second and I had a third. And, um, I, you know, just things went downhill after every operation that I had, which um, I, I just felt at that time a bit, you know, unfulfilled. So, you know, there was, there was a fork in the road where I said, okay, either I'm going to make the jump to the second division or I, I'm going to go back to the States and jump into the business world, you know, make something out of the, the college education that I, that I got. And, you know, I always had, had something for coaching. Even when I was back in the States, I was coaching at, um, at camps. I had a, a good friend of mine or someone in the soccer circuit who, uh, 
offered me jobs for summer camps. I think it was a, I think it's a world-class soccer camp. I think they're called something different now, but, um, you know, I, so I, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with kids. I enjoyed, you know, that other side of the game. So when the offer for SDF to Nuremberg came along, I was about to wave it down. I was about to turn it down because it was a fourth division club. But I went to the meeting anyway, and they offered me the possibility for the future. Um, they offered me, you know, the opportunity to get my coaching licenses while I was still playing for their second team as an experienced player. And that just kind of just rang a bell. It just sounded right. I was like, this is, this is it, you know, let's, let's do this. And they said, okay, if you're good after the three years, then you can work in our, in our youth, youth academy. And that was, that was the decision that, you know, brought me to where I am now. We've seen Julia Nagelsmann take RB Leipzig just recently here to the Champions League semifinals. I know that you and Nagelsmann are are close. How did you guys meet and how did the relationship develop? So he was under-19 coach in, in Hoffenheim and I was an under-19 under coach in, in Nuremberg. And so we, you know, ended up respecting each other and having good conversations when we arranged test matches or had, um, you know, game days against each other. And, it was, um, you know, that relationship grew from there. And we ended up being at the same, coincidentally, at the same uh, pro-license course. And before we, um, you know, before the first day, we, we spoke about whether or not we wanted to share a room together. And uh, we did. And, you know, that was the beginning of, of our relationship. And we spent the 10 months together in Hennet, where we, we did our pro-license. And, and after that, um it was also coincidental that uh, I came to Hoffenheim because, you know, I saw an, an opening for an under-17 coach position, and I actually ended up suggested, suggesting another coach for, for you guys to take a look at him. He's a, he's a good coach, and he said, okay, what's, what, what about you? You know, would you be interested? And then at first I, I was not because it was, I was coaching an under-19 position, and it was an under-17 coaching job at Hoffenheim. But then uh, after I thought about it a while and after one or two conversations, it sounded like the right fit. And so I made the move to Hoffenheim. And then uh, after six months, uh, he, he pulled me up to the first team as an assistant. And that's when, you know, kind of things started moving moving forward. I'm curious, what are, in your opinion, the the similarities and, and any differences in how you and, and Nagelsmann see the game? Uh, th- there are definitely similarities. Um, otherwise it wouldn't have had made sense for him to, to pull me up to the first team. Um, we see things very similarly, um, but we're, we're definitely different. We're definitely different. Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to go into detail what makes me different from him. Um, you know, I'm my own, my own person. I need to be, be true to, to who I am. I cannot, you know, Julian is Julian. So his game is, is, is who he is. My game is who I am. And, even though there are similarities, there are, there are definitely differences. Uh, in detail, I don't, I don't want to go into detail. Maybe someone else who watches our games uh, maybe can tell the difference. Gotcha. Have you been in touch with Julian during this last couple of weeks when he was in Lisbon? Sure, sure. I mean, not we haven't spoken on the phone. He's very busy. I know to respect that. But, uh, you know, small texts. I congratulated him on his, on his win, um, things like that. But... Nothing, uh, no no deep conversations or anything like that at all. Just um, small talk. It strikes me that you and Jesse Marsh both took what some might consider to be either lateral moves or even slightly step-back moves in your coaching careers. 
that ended up paying off for both of you eventually. For Jesse, he went from a head coach position with the Red Bulls to being an assistant at Leipzig. Obviously, he's the head coach at Salzburg now. You go from the U19s at Nuremberg to the U17s at Hoffenheim. But those decisions seem like they really paid off. Is is there some sort of life career lesson in that? Well, I I think it's important to keep moving forward. and that doesn't have to do with status. It has to do with, with development and quality. Uh, so that's what I saw as um, that was the decisive point. So I was looking to test my ideas, um, gain new insights, um, learn, uh, grow. Uh, so that was the move. The move was for a different club and just to, you know, just for a new, new energy. And, um, I think that's important. You know, I think that's important to just continue growing as a as a as a coach or whatever it is we're doing in this in this short life is, is to um, you know we say and I would say an unraveling of your of your person of your personality and and development of quality. I think we need to to continue on that path. And if you make a decision which keeps you on that path, then it's a good decision. But if I decided to stay in Nuremberg, which was not a good decision situation for development, I don't think I would be where I am now. So how did the job at Stuttgart come about for you? That's a good question. I, um, you know, Sven Mifflin talked, um, called me one day. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty simple. I mean, he just called me one day. I didn't, didn't have an agent working for me. I don't know, you know, how, how he got around to, to, you know, being interested in, in my, my person. Uh, but he called me one day and asked me if I can, I can see myself being a head coach at South Stuttgart. And um, so that's that's when it started. You know, I had a, three very intense meetings with with Sven, with uh, Thomas Hitzelsberger, um, and with Markus Ruth. That's that's where it all started. So Stuttgart was the German champion as recently as 14 seasons ago. This is a big club in Germany. How would you describe the club and its history and what it represents? It is a big club with a lot of history and, and a culture, and you sense that by just an enormous fan base and and how many people are interested in our our results. And um, it's a true responsibility. And um, you know, I'm proud to be the head coach of Falkirch Stuttgart. It's such a, such a great club. You know, you just need to Google Google the history of Falkirch Stuttgart, and it's going to be a long list. Um, the fan base is enormous. You know, the stadium is even in the second division was almost almost full. You know, we had 50,000 people coming to the games in the second division, which is you know before before Corona. That's that's uh, fantastic. That's a fantastic club. So, what in your opinion would success be for your team this season? Success is staying in the league mm-hmm. first and foremost. Uh, second, development of of talented players. We have, at the moment, the youngest youngest roster in the, in the, in the first Bundesliga. And um, our game plan, our long-term game plan, is to develop uh, the talents that we have um, to, in order to, to stay stay healthy as a club. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a second second objective that uh, I take also take pride in. I think I'm, um, you know, I've gained a lot of experience in Nuremberg and also in, in Hoffenheim, uh, in regards to the development of young players, and you know, making the jump into the first team and what they need to be to be professionals. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the second objective, the second goal. And I think if we uh, get both of those going, then uh, it's a successful season. Sven Mislintat, you mentioned that the club is a, a very recognized figure. I, I 
did a book chapter in my book a couple of years ago on Michael Zork at Dortmund and Sven Mislintat was a big part of what they did at Dortmund. What have you learned about Sven and and how he goes about what he does? Uh, Sven's, Sven's fantastic. Uh, Sven's um, got a very good head on his shoulders. He's very smart. He follows his instincts. Um, he has his heart in the right place. Um, I enjoy working with him. I enjoy having also heated discussions with him. <laughs> we have every once in a while, but it's, I think it belongs to the job. It's always about it's always about the subject matter. You know, when we're talking about the job, it's about the subject matter. And, you know, then, then you can talk about, then you can have heated dis- discussions and, and, you know, fight for your, your point of view. And in that way, we, you know, get to, to a higher level of communication and um, usually, you know, find the right solution. So I, I've enjoyed working with him these past few months, learned a lot from him. Not only from him, I think Thomas Hitzelberg is doing also a fantastic job, as, as well as, as Markus Rutt. I think we have a good team in place at Fellowship Street Garden, which is also the main reason why I, I took the job. You know, I, I think it's it's not only just the club, but it's the people you work with within the club that, that makes a difference. And uh, it was important for me to know that you know we work on a similar wavelength and uh, the culture of, uh, of communication is is productive and, and constructive. And that's the way it is at the moment. Does everyone there realize you're American by now? Or is that not always acknowledged? I think people forget. I think um, because of my, also my Italian background, um, my accent, you know, actually a lot of my American family and friends say that I, I, I have an accent when I speak English. I, maybe you use <laughs> um, But um, my, you know, I don't have an such an American accent when I speak German. I think it's also because I'm trilingual because I also speak Italian. So they, they can't, they don't really sense the, that. Um, so I think they forget sometimes, but whenever I start speaking English or, you know, bring up a couple of jokes or talk about the States and, and, uh, but now, yeah, I forgot, you know, you're American. <laughs> <laughs> We're winding down here with Pellegrino Matarazzo, the coach of Stuttgart. How often do you get back to the United States? Unfortunately, not as often as I would like to. Um, the last time I was back in the States, I think it was crew. Don't let me lie. I think it was a year and a half ago. Wow. A year and a half ago. Yeah. Which, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, you know, having my, you know, wife and kids. My wife is, is German. My son is also, you know, he's 10. He's here as well. And it also has to do with Corona. Otherwise, we would have been home in the summer. Uh, we we, we want to get back once a year. That's our, that's our goal. Um, but because of the summer break, kind of falling, falling flat and not having a, really having a break, um, we weren't home. So, we're looking to go back for Christmas. We were looking to go back for Christmas, but the Christmas break is also not non-existent, which will probably mean the next time we'll be back home will be summer of uh, 2021. How many family members do you still have in New Jersey? Uh, everybody's home. Mom, dad, um, my my brothers. I have three brothers. Um, their families, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins. Everyone's in either in in, in New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, New York. My brother uh, Antonio's in, in Manhattan. I work in Manhattan for the MLS in marketing. Um, I, I have, of course, I have family in, uh, in Italy as well, but uh, my immediate family is in, in New Jersey. Lastly, just I'm curious, you're, you're 42 years old. You're a young man. What are some of the things you want to do in your career? <laughs> there was a time where I made plans. Uh, I, I started making like career plans, like what steps I want to take at what point in time. And then at, at some point I realized 
They never really work out. <laughs> they always go in a different way that you actually plan. So I, at the moment, I'm just thinking about being the best fellow for Stuttgart coach that I can be and, and doing my job as, as, as well as possible. I, I, I'm really not thinking about um, what I, where I'll be in five years. Uh, you know, so if that my path will take me back to the States or to, to Italy or to wherever I, you know, I'll just let it come, come how it comes. And uh, at the moment, I'm just happy where I am and doing what I'm doing. Pellegrino Matarazzo is a New Jersey native and the manager at the German club Stuttgart. They begin their Bundesliga campaign on September 19th against Freiburg. Pellegrino, congratulations on what you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Grant. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Pellegrino Matarazzo as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show, our partner for everything they did to help get this show off the ground. I'm taking off a couple weeks now, but our show will be back and better than ever after that. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.